Let's pray as we open up God's Word together. Lord God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you that it is in the Bible. Thank you that you would give us, in your Word, words to express our doubts about you. So, Lord, as we spend time in your Word now, turn our minds to hear you speak. Open our eyes to see your ways of thinking. And, Lord, give us undivided hearts in trust and devotion in you. Lord, satisfy us with your love and increase our joy in you this morning, we ask. Amen. Uh, My wife Catherine has uh, been getting into walking and uh, running in particular as well. Uh, Recently, she ended up with a small injury on her foot. Uh, You know those kind of ones, you you look at it and you can't can't see anything. Uh, It it looks okay. There was no accident or or, or trip or something that uh, that caused it, but it, it just hurt. And you know... Something's not quite right. There's a little injury there. When you exercise or play sport, uh, something can happen that gives you a little injury. And the temptation can be just to push on. Who, who here pushes on at that moment? Okay, all right. There's a few of you out there. Uh, to, to just ignore it. Now, may, maybe it'll go away. Uh, be tough. Suck it up. Carry on. Keep going. Surely it wouldn't possibly get worse. It'll definitely go away. Now, to Catherine's credit and wisdom, uh, she did take it easy. She rested it until she was feeling better, although she was very tempted just to push on with more running. Uh, But that's uh, that's what you do with those sorts of injuries. You you, you take notice. You, You try to figure out how bad it is. You maybe get some advice on that. Uh, and you do things like, like taping it or icing it or elevating it. You, you pay attention and you address the injury rather than just push on. And the same kind of thing can happen with our faith. Uh, something happens that gives your faith uh, a, an injury. You, you take a, a verbal beating from your work colleagues who all think that what you believe is stupid. Maybe it is. You fall into that same old ugly sin again. Am I actually even a Christian? You watch a YouTube video on all the contradictions in the Bible. Maybe I've been naive to trust this book. A bleak diagnosis of a loved one. How can God be good? Something happens, a... a, a discrepancy between what you believe and an experience in your life, and it's like your faith now has an injury. What do you do? You just push on. You suck it up. You're a good Christian. You don't, you don't ask questions. You certainly don't have those things called doubts. You, you just need to believe more. You, know, you ignore that injury. Uh, surely it won't get worse. Surely it won't fester. Bad advice. I hope you heard the satire there. What do we do with our faith injuries? What do we do with our doubts? 
Now, what is doubt? Doubt is, is when we're feeling uncertain or questioning the truth or facts of something. That's, that's all the doubt is. A feeling uncertaining or questioning the truth or facts of something. And our passage this morning is Psalm 73. The author, a guy named Asaph, a lead musician for tabernacle worship, he, in this psalm, is doubting. He has a faith injury. He's questioning, how can God be good when I see these things in my life? And he actually goes on a, 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 through a journey of doubt. So that's what we're talking about this morning, the, the journey of doubt and the question of God's goodness. We're going to step through this psalm bit by bit. It's the sort of psalm where it really pays to follow Asaph's train of thought throughout it. We're going to move with him uh, first into uh, developing doubts, then into doubting doubts, and lastly, uh, dispensing with doubts. So firstly, developing doubts. Have a look with me at verse 1, either up on your screen or with your own uh, Bible or device. He opens, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He opens with an orthodox creedal statement. It's, it's orthodox, it's right belief. He is saying something that is right belief. But the careful reader notices that little word at the beginning, surely. And you've got to be an extra careful reader if you're reading in Hebrew because it's only two letters, ak. Translations for that word are ones like surely or truly, really, certainly. How are we to understand this little word there? Is it like one of our modern-day millennial fillers, like like? Yeah. I was like halfway through my story when somebody burst through the door. Like, what, what was the like doing there? Uh, or, or really just, Lord, we really just want to praise you this morning. I just, is Asaph just adding a little bit of verbal fluff to his psalm? Hmm. Or is it something more? And given the literary genius and thoughtful art behind the biblical authors communicating their theological truths... We suspect it's more. So the first way to read verse 1 is a genuine faithful proclamation, and that is what it is. God is good to Israel. He really is. He is good to Israel for sure. Have you heard the, the call and response? God is good? All the time? Okay, some of you have heard it. Very good. Um, uh, th this is our little modern take on a simple but profound and true statement about God. But in verse 1, there is also more than a hint of a, a question lingering in that surely. God is good to Israel. Really? God is good to Israel. But is he? Asaph, a faithful leader of God's people, now goes on to share some pretty significant doubts that he is having. In fact, Asaph, in his life experience, he is scandalized by watching those who couldn't care less about God and his ways enjoying the good life. 
Let's have a look at verse 2 with me. He goes on, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Maybe God is good to Israel, and that's still true, but maybe not to me. He, he tells us up front about himself personally. He, he almost walked away because of this question, this doubt, which for him in this instance stemmed from envy. Uh, one author says this about envy. To envy is to want someone else's life. It's to feel not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do and God hasn't been fair. So let's read on into the content of Asaph's envy and doubt. And I'm going to read just for a moment in the NLT uh, just to uh, bring a a fresh uh, translation to mind. Verse 3. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They have time for the gym. Uh, they, they don't have troubles like everyone else. They're not plagued with problems. They wear pride like jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything they ever, their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and they speak evil and in their pride they, they crush others. And they boast against the very heavens. Their words strut through the earth. And so people are dismayed and confused and drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what is happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Asaph's doubts stem from this. He, he can see the, the wicked, evil people around him. And really that's the, the psalm's strong language for, for people with no need for nor care about God. And they seem to be living the good life. I mean, life is easy. Wealth is cheap. They are mean and they are nasty and they get whatever they like. They're arrogant, they're rude, they're self-justifying, and they're influential. People are listening to them, soaking in their words and, and echoing their words. We have no need for God. What outdated nonsense that is. In fact, his ways are wrong. How much more enlightened are we now today? Things have changed a lot in the last 3,000 years, haven't they? And as they live in rebellion to, the Lord Je- uh, to, to, to God... They enjoy the good life. And that is scandalously unjust of God. Have you ever questioned that yourself? Things like, I drive a bomb of a car that starts mostly through prayer. But that slimy, dodgy business owner drives a Tesla. And a thought enters your mind. Life might be better if I was giving less to church and mission. I have more health complications than I do dollars in the bank. But my neighbours are spending their retirement on what it seems like almost constant holidays with their grandkids. And a thought enters your mind. Why is their life better than mine? 
You're bundling the family up to rush them off to church as the neighbors are casually loading the surfboards to go to the beach. And the thought enters your mind. Life would be better with less church. Your non-Christian friends aren't single, or your non-Christian friends still have their spouse with them, and the thought enters your mind, life would be better if the dating pool was a little bit bigger than the Christian pond. Your non-Christian friends haven't experienced that tragic loss and grief. And the thought enters your mind, why am I the only one without loved ones around me? Or there's that Instagram, living the dream, traveling the world, and the thought enters your mind, if if I just didn't take on those responsibilities at church, if I didn't be part of that team, then then I could work more, I could earn more, I could travel more, and then, then I would be happy. Have you ever questioned like that? If you have, Psalm 73 is here in the Bible to tell you, that's okay. That's okay. Maybe your, your doubts are, are different sorts of uncertainties. Maybe they're more intellectual. My atheist friends came to keep trapping me in their arguments. Maybe they have a point. Or maybe it's more sin-related. I am so not free from sin. Am I even saved? Or maybe it's more to do with isolation. I am the only one in almost every sphere of my life that's a Christian. Maybe I'm the one that's wrong. Psalm 73 is here to tell us, that's okay. That's okay. Your heavenly Father is telling you, I get it. I get it. But don't stop yet. Don't stop yet. See, doubt, we are shown here, is an expected experience for the believer. It's an expected experience for the believer. So you can't doubt and wrestle with something you don't believe. That's just contented unbelief. Asaph is letting us in on his doubt journey. No, his faith journey. See, he has told us in verse 2, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my way. Doubt is an expected experience for the believer And what if doubt could actually serve a good purpose? What if? So back to our starting question. What do we do with our faith injuries? Our our questions that become doubts. So we turn to doubting doubts. In verse 13, uh, we get a new surely and a new section. This section shows us what not to do with our doubts and the key to what to do with them. Have a look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. This surely here is followed by an unorthodox statement. It's followed by wrong belief. It's in vain to pursue God's ways. Surely. In the first part of the psalm, Asaph developed doubts about the truth. And here in this middle section of the psalm, Asaph is going to doubt these doubts. But not without first hitting the crescendo of his doubts. Have a look with me at verse 14. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings me new punishments. 
He is in real suffering. The exact circumstances we don't know. And he, he says, it's as if I'm being punished for doing good. Have you felt that before? You know the old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. At school, when it's unpopular to be legit in following Jesus, you face the punishment. At work, when your integrity and honesty probably lost some business and you suspect lost that promotion, you face the punishment. When your friends distance you because they know your lifestyle choices are so very different to theirs, you face the punishment. Here we see that Asaph's struggle is not merely an intellectual one. It's does godliness really pay off? Because I'm hurting and following God just doesn't seem to be helping. But we are at the turning point of his doubt, no faith journey. Verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. This is a curious thing to say for someone who has just said as much as he has said. Has Asaph not spoken out like that? I mean, not even in a little way, not a uh, saying it over dinner with just a few close friends privately. But but, but publicly, written down in a a psalm, the, the, the liturgy and the hymnal of the Israelites... Has he not betrayed God's people? Christian leaders are meant to be strong, right? Kids' church teams don't doubt. Church musos don't doubt. Youth leaders don't doubt. Team leaders don't doubt. Connect group leaders don't doubt. Ministry leaders, deacons, elders, pastors. We don't doubt, do we? Again, hear the satire. Has Asaph dropped the ball and been too honest? What, what does he mean he would have betrayed God's people? But, but he thinks he hasn't. Notice the if. But if I had spoken out like that. Well, what, what hasn't he done that he thinks he hasn't done with his questions and his doubts? This psalm gives us at least three keys of things not to do with our doubt. The first one we've really already seen. What not to do? Bottle it up. Asaph hasn't bottled it up, and by so doing, he's given license to other people to not bottle it up as well. He's also been humbly honest about the the sin attitude for him that was intertwining his particular doubt struggle, his envy. The, The second thing we see of what not to do with our doubt is to turn to negativity, just pure negativity, for relief. See, this is a a thoughtful engagement with doubt. Verse 1 and 2 has set up the beginnings of the framework of his thinking. He's not letting go of that starting premise. God is good. I'm holding on for it. And my feet almost slipped, but this is a journey within the boundaries of faith. He's not walking away. He's seeking a productive way through his questions. Because just straight negativity is unproductive. In a a kind of self-destructive sort of way, 
it, it, it attempts to soothe the symptom of the problem through whinging. When we are negative and complaining, we aren't taking responsibility for how we might contribute to a solution. We are simply just trying to make ourselves feel better through the act of complaining. Uh, a line from uh, a, a pastor who wrote a book on uh, deconstruction, Josh Porter. Uh, he said this, As someone who is drawn to cynicism and pe pessimism in my flesh, drawn to that way of seeing the world, I have learned that I have to constantly go against my own wiring in, to order my thinking and environment in such a way as to contribute to faithfulness rather than faithlessness. I heard one pastor say, complaining is the language of unbelief. So in our doubts, run from negativity, run from complaining. These are unproductive. Asaph's doing a lot more than just complaining. The third thing he shows us is what not to do, go it alone. Don't go it alone. Have a look at verse 16 with me. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. The key turning point is, is when Asaph walks into the sanctuary of God. He's, he's referring to the tabernacle, the, the tent version that predates the temple, God's dwelling place amongst his people. When he walked in there, that's the turning point. Asaph is showing us that the journey through doubt is best done with God and his people. God's presence has brought the perspective of eternity. One writer warns, before you lose your way, you lose your fellowship. What does Asaph see in the tabernacle? Here's a, a, a diagram of, of it. He would have seen all kinds of things, but some of the key things he would have seen, he saw the sacrificial system. Uh, you can faintly see the smoke uh, going up from a couple of points in that picture. He, he saw the end result of sin being bloody and gruesome death. And he saw the curtain behind which was the Ark of the Covenant God's holy presence with his people and containing his good law and instruction. He would have seen all kinds of things, but in summary, he saw the place of the worship of God in fellowship with God's people. Our modern equivalents, church. Asaph, with his doubts, his questions, his envy, his suffering, brought all of that mess to God and to his people. And the end result was a, was a new perspective from God rather than his own limited understanding. He came to see the lives of the unbeliever and his life from God's perspective. The journey through doubt is best done with God and his people. Asaph has not purely spoken like that but rather with, yes, raw honesty, 
modeled a productive wrestling with his doubts in connection with God and his people. So we should neither fear doubt nor elevate it as a virtue. We we want a church culture that says questions are good, doubts are okay. In fact, they're usually signs of faith growth. Questions help us progress in almost anything in life. If someone is able to courageously be honest and open with you about their doubts and uncertainties, I hope that you will give them a kind and compassionate and productive response to their doubts or uncertainties. As Jude verse 22 tells us, be merciful to those who doubt. I hope you'll say, thank you for sharing. It's okay that you feel this way. It's okay that you have these questions. God is good, and we're in this together. And if it's you here this morning who are feeling in this vulnerable, injured faith kind of space, it's okay that, you're, that you feel this way. It's okay that you have these questions. God is good, and we're in this together. And please come and talk to me or someone else here this morning. I want to hear it. We want to hear it. I wonder if the Western church was getting this kind of culture right, if the phenomenon of deconstructionism might never have happened. ASAP models a an approach to legitimate questions and doubts that is quite far from the modern idea of deconstruction. I want to talk briefly about it for just a moment. Now, for for some of you, uh, it might totally not be on your radar. Uh, For others of you, you might be keenly aware of this idea. Let me give you a few definitions, uh, increasing in simplicity, uh, as we we, uh, have a quick look at a couple, uh, again from this author, Josh Porter. Uh, what is deconstruction? It's, it's analysing a concept in order to expose its hidden internal assumptions and contradictions and subvert its apparent significance or unity. It's to reduce something to its constituent parts in order to reinterpret it. Or more simply, it, it describes the process by which someone who was once a Christian embarks on a quest to jettison parts or all of their Christianity. It's most simply to dismantle or undo a faith once held. The problem with deconstruction uh, is not don't question God. Uh, The problem is not don't test your theological assumptions. The problem is not don't be open to new viewpoints. Those are all actually very good things in the life of the believer. The problem is, is viewing doubt as, as virtue. The problem is, is hyper-individualism that comes with it. It's, it's a, I don't need nor want anyone else to reach my own conclusions. Its aim is not growing a deeper faith, a more re- realistic, resilient or robust faith. No, its aim is to jettison faith because it begins with the assumption of error. It, it's a type 
of attitude or questioning that seems to be usually defined by a by heart of rebellion. It's a very different thing to what Asaph is modelling for us. Psalm 73 shows us that we don't need to fear doubt. A doubt is an expected experience for the believer and that doubt can produce good results. So let's differentiate a good culture of questioning and, and, and doubt being productively engaged with from the highly flawed approach of deconstruction. Uh, I'm having Korean barbecue tomorrow night uh, with a few of you sitting here amongst us. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, Korean barbecue, if, uh, if you haven't done it before, it is great. It's my favourite meal. Uh, you have heaps of pre-cut and marinated meat and you cook it uh, in the centre of the table around friends and chatting. Uh, last time I did this, uh, I decided to set things up a notch. Usually you, we used a, a gas cooker and I decided it was time uh, to go for a proper coal fire pit kind of approach. So I bought one of these, a Barbie in a box. What could possibly go wrong, you ask? Uh, disposable barbecue. Uh, basically, it's a foil tray with a few pieces of coal inside it. And I set it up on my glass outside table. Wait for it. it oh, what do you expect of me? Safety first, I put a couple of pieces of wood under it, okay? okay. <laughs> I know what you're all thinking, though. Um, uh, but the next thing I know, good thing I put the wood there, uh, the foil has almost instantly melted away, and the coals are now sitting on the wood, slowly burning their way through it, as in this picture here. Uh, real, real live action shot. Um, I discovered this uh, coming out from putting the, some of the kids down to bed, and um, I, I've got to say, uh, Alex, Mark, and Catherine were all just kind of looking at it, wondering what to do. <laughs> I'm like, guys, we might need to do something about this before it burns through the wood. Uh, and so we ended up quickly and, and carefully relocating the coals into an actual fire pit, and uh, then we were able to cook an absolutely delicious meal, rather than burn my patio down. Uh, doubt is like fire. It's risky and dangerous, but it can produce good results. Now, fire is risky. It can burn a forest down. It can destroy a house. It can barbecue tofu or eggplant. But fire can produce good results. It can move a huge steam train in the age before electricity or combustion engines. It can cook a medium-rare steak to perfection. It can purify precious metals, increasing their value and usefulness. Danger and good can sometimes be quite close together. So don't fear doubt, nor view it as a virtue. And don't go it alone. Doubt used in the right way can bring all the good of a fire. The journey of, uh, through doubt is best done with God and his people. And as fire refines metal, doubt refines faith. So what is the fire of doubt purifying in Asaph's faith? We come to the final section of his psalm, dispensing with doubts. Verse 18. Asaph gives us one final surely, this time 
as a confident expression of God's eternal perspective and divine justice. Here we see a reordering of Asaph's thinking. He gives us a whole lot more detail for this, this understanding that he has gained in God's presence. Here it's as if he's now directing his questions to serve my faith rather than doubt. Verse 18. Surely you place the wicked on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. He is reminded that those without God might look like their life is easy, good, and secure, but in reality, it will all come crashing down. Life, this life is so short and so fleeting. How incredibly dangerous is the road that they are on. There's something instructive here for us. Don't, don't look at those living the good life with envy. Look with compassion with compassion on the lost. That is the key. Compassion is both the right eternal perspective from God and the right heart posture. Asaph has re-realized this. Verse 21, he tells us, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant I was a brute beast before you. Asaph reflects on and reorders his doubting thinking. I was in a place of grief and bitterness, but, but it caused me to forget what I know to be true of God and his goodness. What is true is true, whether we feel it or not. And it's wonderful when we feel it. But it is true whether we feel it or not. And that is a great comfort. Asaph shows us, verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand, uh, by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you take me up to your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the fresh awareness of how truly blessed the follower of God really is. Because if you don't have God, you have nothing. Because nothing else will last. Nothing else will satisfy. We believe that. We believe that, church. So in your doubts and uncertainties, Draw on the fact that your deeper desire is to be with and to be like Jesus and that he is guiding you by the hand. He is forming that in you. The opening lines of the book of Ephesians emphasize this phenomenal truth with the, the clarity of the fulfillment in Jesus that Asaph only glimpsed at. Disciple of Jesus... You will have your doubts and struggles. 
but you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. You are united with Christ Jesus. God has always loved you, and he has chosen you and made you without fault in his eyes. God has adopted you into his family, called you his own child. You belong with your maker. And doing that brings God great pleasure. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1, he con- that Paul continues that line of thinking. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Tim Keller, who recently died of cancer at age 72, in his Psalms devotional book, reflecting on, a section, on this section, he said, Life in glory with God will suffice for the healing of all wounds, the answering of all questions Jesus has promised. And he goes on to pray, Lord, I thank you for how suffering drives me like a nail deeper into your love. It is not my earthly joys, but my griefs that show me your grace is enough. What a great prayer. Asaph closes his psalm, his prayer. Verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Asaph has dispensed of his doubts by fixing his eyes on God's eternal perspective and his divine justice. Surely God is good. Surely he is just. Surely he longs to bless the pure in heart. Surely, truly, really, yes, yes, he does. He is good and he loves to bless us. So remember, the truth of God's eternal goodness shines clearest when we are near him and his people, in fellowship, in community. Asaph comes to display a a faith-fueled optimism. He's not naive, he's seen the world, he's realistic and hopeful because of God. A faith-fueled optimism. The journey of doubt has served his faith. The doubt is not good in and of itself, but God has used it to produce something that is good. Enriched faith, the fire of doubt produces resilient, robust, stronger faith. What if doubt can bring good? What if doubt serves faith? And what is strong faith? A faith that never questions, no. Something richer, well-formed, thought through, tested, resilient, robust, and ultimately more in love with God and more satisfied in Him. Questions help us progress. 
and God can handle our questions. So put your doubts in their proper place, serving faith. And you're going to need God and his church to do it. Being near God is good. What do we do with our, uh, when life injures our faith? We don't just push on. We don't just ignore it. We direct that injury, those questions, those uncertainties, those doubts to serve our faith, to refine our faith. Because the journey through doubt is done in connection with God and his people. He is good. He is just. And he longs to bless you. And as the gathering team uh, comes back up, let me uh, close uh, with this blessing from the end of the book of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Please stand and let's sing.